Welcome to this edition of Code Talk, the concise podcast to help you get to know the National Electrical Code. I'm your host, Frank Seiler, based in Spokane, Washington, and today's episode is Introduction to Branch Circuits, Article 210 of the National Electrical Code. As mentioned in the previous podcast, the topic of branch circuits and corresponding article is hefty enough that we really want to spend three episodes looking at the details. Of the three parts of the wiring system described in Chapter 2 of the NEC, that is service, feeder, branch circuit, this is the one that really has the most diversity in terms of all the things that we might use. There are just so many applications, and so this article addresses many of these in detail but not all of them, and we'll talk about that in a second. But first of all, let's recap. What is a branch circuit? Well, Article 100 defines a branch circuit as the conductors between the last overcurrent protective device, such as a fuse or breaker, and the outlet or outlets. And in this context, an outlet is the connection to utilization equipment. It may be cord and plug connected, or it may be hardwired, it does not have the word receptacle in front of outlet, so we can't assume that it means strictly a corded connection. And then, to paraphrase the Article 100 definition of utilization equipment, we have to get something useful out of the equipment as it converts electrical energy to heat, light, rotational force, or chemical process. Now, to get a little context for the location of Article 210 in the National Electrical Code, all of the articles in the 200s are part of Chapter 2, which is entitled Wiring and Protection. And this chapter deals with, first of all, where are you in the electrical system? Service, feeder, or branch circuit? And then secondly, how are we electrically, not physically, how are we electrically protecting this part of the system? Now, if you're diving right in to a podcast right here without previous knowledge of the NEC, it might be a good idea to go back a couple of episodes so that the landscape that we're talking about in the code is a, a little bit more familiar. Just like all articles in the NEC, this one, Article 210, is divided up into several major divisions, or parts. These are denoted by Roman numerals within the article. Article 210 consists of three of these parts. Part 1 is entitled General Provisions, Part 2, Branch Circuit Ratings, and Part 3, Required Outlets. Each of these parts, of course, has some major players, so the best way we might approach this is to kind of do a top 10. We'll see if we can squeeze it into 10 bullet points. There might be a couple of more. But uh, here we go. So looking overall at the article, Part 1 is entitled General Provisions. That's not a surprise. That's how most articles start out with the general things that are true of all parts of the article, and then some very specific things thereafter. So, in my top ten or so, number one, the scope in 
It reminds us here that these are general provisions, but the code, of course, addresses some special stuff, too. And hence, 210.3 is entitled, Other Articles for Specific Purpose Branch Circuits. And it gives us a reference, Table 210.3, for specific equipment and applications that are not located in Chapters 5, 6, and 7, but that amend or supplement the requirements of Article 210. Now, as an instructor that has worked with this table a lot, I really dislike what happened to it in the 2017 NEC. It got shortened up quite a bit. In prior editions, this was a much more exhaustive table, and it was really useful in finding specific branch circuit requirements throughout the code. It kind of served as a shorthand or a quick index. However, in limiting the table to things that are other than chapters 5, 6, and 7, we're left with the following. And so looking at Table 210.3, entitled Specific Purpose Branch Circuits, it has uh, just a handful. And with each of them, it gives either the article or the section number to find the information. So here's the quick list of them. Air conditioning and refrigeration equipment, Section 440.6.31 and .32. Busways, Section 368.17. Central Heating Equipment Other Than Fixed Electric Space Heating Equipment, Section 422.12. Fixed Electric Heating Equipment for Pipelines and Vessels, Section 427.4. Fixed Electric Space Heating Equipment, Section 424.3. Fixed Outdoor Electrical De-Icing and Snow Melting Equipment, Section 426.4. Infrared Lamp Industrial Heating Equipment, Sections 422.48 and 424.3. Motors, motor circuits and controllers, Article 430. Switchboards and panel boards, Section 408.52. And so these are the ones that are going to change the generic rules or the basic rules for very specific applications. Sometimes they are, uh, at first glance, not unique. You'll look at all the heating loads, for example, and find that we treat them as a continuous load thus multiply our circuit by 125%. However, the different kinds of heating equipment then have some upper limits or upper maximums for individual branch circuits, the size of these, or perhaps the size of the heat banks. So that's just one example. Now, if you're interested in what articles were referenced in the prior NEC editions, uh, I'll add those to the episode notes, and those will be available on my website at www.inw-training.com. So, for my number two, 210.4, multi-wire branch circuits. Now, in the field, we might say that these are shared neutral branch circuits. It's two hots or three hots sharing a common neutral. And it's defined as a circuit that consists of two or more ungrounded, or think hot conductors, that have a voltage between them, and a grounded or neutral conductor that has equal voltage between it and each ungrounded conductor of the circuit, and that it is connected to the neutral or grounded conductor of the system. Again, that's an Article 100 definition. The conductors of such circuits have to originate from the same panel board, and these circuits can supply only line-to-neutral loads. Number 3, 210.8. Ground Fault Circuit Interrupter Protection for Personnel. GFCIs, that's the abbreviation, Ground Fault Circuit Interrupter Protection, 
uh, GFCIs, protect people against electric shock. And these are logically placed in areas where people, electricity, and a sufficient level of moisture are in close proximity to each other. Now, the requirements are different based on dwelling units versus non-dwelling units, and there are vast differences between the 2014, 2017, and 2020 rules here. We will tease these apart in the next episode. Top 10 number 4, 210.11, branch circuits required. Now, there are three subsections to this. One deals with loads computed based on the floor area of an occupancy or the square footage, and then also subdividing the loads into balanced circuits, and finally, some specific circuit requirements for dwelling units. Number 5, 210.12, Arc Fault Circuit Interrupter Protection. An AFCI, or Arc Fault Circuit Interrupter, provides protection from the effects of arc faults by recognizing characteristics unique to arcing and by functioning to de-energize the circuit when an arc fault is detected. Now, the purpose of an AFCI is to detect arcing faults with potentially enough heat energy to ignite normal building materials. So when we compare 210.8 GFCI protection and 210.12 AFCI protection, We see that some branch circuits, such as the kitchen countertops, dishwasher, laundry receptacle, well, they actually require both types of protection. And many electricians incorrectly use a term here. Quite often they'll say, I'm going to use a combination breaker here. But really they're properly termed dual function breaker. The term combination AFCI is present in 210.12, but its meaning is a little bit different. It detects both series and parallel arcing faults. It doesn't mean that it's also a GFCI. If you need both functions, a dual function circuit breaker is what you're after. So just in this first part, part one, Roman numeral one, general, we already have five important sets of rules that we identified. And we really don't have a chance to drill down into the details here. We'll do that in the next episode. So episode 8 will cover just three points in detail. 210.8 GFCIs, 210.11 required branch circuits, and 210.12 AFCI protection. That brings us to part 2, Roman numeral part 2, branch circuit ratings. And as a side note, sometimes we get into a habit as electricians of looking at the wire size and deducing most of the time correctly, but we deduce the size of the circuit from that. For example, we open up a junction box, we see a 10-gauge wire, and automatically our brain goes, hey, that's a 30-amp circuit. Now, what if you came to the panel and found that it's on a 20-amp breaker? It is not a 30-amp circuit in that case. So we always have to look at the overcurrent device to really tell us what size the circuit is. Okay, of the top 10, number 5. 210.19, minimum opacity and size of our conductors. The rules for opacity require a little bit of study, and one item that many people overlook is that branch circuits, before the application of any adjustment or correction factors, must have an allowable opacity, not less than the non-continuous load, plus 125% of the continuous load. Now, the code does have exceptions for 
some of these, uh, but generally this rule applies. So we might ask, well, what's a continuous load? In most cases, it's the length of time that dictates this. If a load is expected to be on for three hours or more, then we consider it a continuous load. That's out of Article 100 definitions. Now, in other places, the code might say, this particular load is such that even though it may or may not be a continuous load, we're going to treat it as one. Heating loads are a good example. Quite often, they're thermostatically controlled, probably not on continuously for three hours. However, the code asks us to consider these as continuous loads. Number six in our top list of important items in Article 210 is a table. It is Table 210.21b2, and it shows the maximum loads on receptacles. So it gives a receptacle, receptacle rating, the circuit that it's on, and the maximum amount of current that we may draw through that particular receptacle. And it generally shows that the maximum load on any given circuit is 80% of the receptacle rating and circuit rating. Now, it's not spelled out that way, but take a look at the numbers. You can figure out the math pretty easily. For example, the maximum load on a 15-amp receptacle is 12 amps. That's 80%. 20-amp receptacle, maximum load 16 amps, and so on. So we are assuming that the load we might plug in could operate continuously, and thus the current is restricted to 80% of the receptacle rating. Which leads into top 10, number 7. 210.23, permissible loads. So if we differentiate between loads that are fastened in place and those that are not, we're going to have different amounts of current that we may take from a multi-outlet or general purpose circuit. So for example, if the equipment is fixed in place and it is not a dedicated circuit, it's a multi-outlet circuit, that piece of equipment may only draw 50% of the circuit rating. Now, if it's portable, if it can be moved around, then we can plug into a receptacle and we can utilize up to 80% of the circuit rating. However, if the equipment is fixed in place and is a dedicated circuit rather than a general purpose one, that piece of equipment may draw up to 80% of the circuit because that circuit is dedicated to that particular piece of equipment. In our top 10, number 8. I can already see we're going to run out of 10 here. But number 8, table 210.24, it's a summary of the branch circuit requirements, and it allows you to see many things at a glance. Now, if we're just diving in here without context, some of the things here might not make sense. However, we can just look up the circuit rating based on the load that we plan to supply, and the table then tells us minimum conductor size. It tells us size of the taps, overcurrent protection, and maximum load. It tells us which kind of lamp holders are permitted if it is a lighting-type circuit, and also what the maximum or minimum receptacle rating must be. So there's a lot going on in this table, and again, we don't have context here for all of it yet, but don't cast it aside. Put a marker here. We're going to do a, a bit of a mind map for this particular table in Episode 10. We'll use this table as our basis to explore the various parts of the code that are brought together here and summarized here, and that will give us the context needed. All right, now we have Roman numeral 3, part 3, required outlets. So our number 9 in our top 10, 210.52, dwelling unit receptacle outlets. 
all of the spacing rules for dwelling units, habitable rooms, kitchen countertops, hallways, etc. All of them are here. Episode 9 will dive a bit deeper into these requirements. They can get quite specific. And we'll also tackle the island and peninsular countertop requirements here that are new to the 2020 edition. And no, I didn't mispronounce peninsular in the 2020 edition. That, that is how it's spelled. Peninsular, with an R, countertops. So, up till now, we've had uh, just a linear requirement, a certain length, and then we add a receptacle. The 2020 edition goes much deeper, and it allots a certain number of receptacles per square foot. So that's one of the changes coming up. All right, we've hit number 10. Our number 10 most important item in Article 210 is 210.63. Sometimes overlooked, especially when we're working on a facility that has been around for a while. And then there is uh, an addition of a heating or air conditioning or refrigeration equipment item. We actually have to check, make sure that there is a receptacle in place to service this particular piece of equipment. A 125-volt, single-phase, 15 or 20-amp rated receptacle outlet shall be installed at an accessible location for the servicing of heating, air conditioning, and refrigeration equipment. The receptacle shall be located on the same level and within 25 feet of the heating, air conditioning, and refrigeration equipment. And this receptacle outlet shall not be connected to the load side of the equipment disconnecting means. In other words, if we lock out and tag out this piece of equipment, our service outlet still has to remain on. So a couple of things to note here. First of all, it doesn't have to be a dedicated circuit. Quite often, already an outlet in the vicinity, an exterior outlet that serves this function. The other thing to note is that sometimes large equipment, like rooftop equipment, might come with an internal receptacle. However, if we power down the unit by locking and tagging out the disconnect for that piece of equipment, that receptacle is also dead. Another one has to be provided within 25 feet to service the equipment. And generally that's for the evacuation pump for servicing the heating and air conditioning equipment. So as much as I wanted to get this into a top 10 format, we're past the 10 items and I can already see one other thing. So for my final pick of important Article 210 requirements, let's go with number 11. So it's 10 plus a bonus. 210.70, and actually this is a fairly, fairly large chunk, it's important, required lighting outlets. So what's in here? Well, it's the minimum requirements for habitable rooms that may utilize a switched receptacle instead of a permanently mounted light fixture, what the lighting requirements are for building entrances. All of those things are covered in this little section. So again, these are going to be covered in depth in Episode 9, but a summary of key requirements are as follows. So each habitable room needs a switch-controlled light fixture. However, except for bathrooms and kitchens, we may substitute a switched receptacle instead. An interior light is required for attached and detached garages and outbuildings with electric supply. Also, an exterior light is required to illuminate building entrances. Exterior lights may be switched or motion activated. Stairs that have six or more risers require switching at the top and bottom. And attic and crawl spaces with serviceable equipment need a lighting outlet near the point of entrance. And so that's a quick summary of 210.70. 
Well, all right, there you have it, my top 10 plus a bonus, key rules for Article 210 branch circuits. As I mentioned earlier, the next episode will focus on GFCI and AFCI requirements, as well as required circuits. So be sure to tune in as we'll try to highlight some examples and possible test questions that you might encounter in regards to these as well. So thank you for listening. If you found this episode on a site other than our website, please go to www.inw-training.com for the lecture notes. Until next time, this is your host, Frank Seiler, signing off from Spokane, Washington.